If you will take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Man, great singing this morning as always. It's nothing like gathering together with other believers and singing and worshiping the Lord. If you've had a bad week, there's nothing better than coming in and worshiping the Lord to lift your spirits. If you've had a good week, there's nothing better than coming in and worshiping the Lord together. That's the way we should function as believers. In the good times and the bad times, we are focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ because we need that encouragement. We need that blessing that comes from the Word of God and singing the Word of God in particular. Would you agree with me this morning that there is power in a word? I mean, just singing the word or hearing the word or hearing somebody speak to you encouraging words, there's power in the spoken word. There's power in things that we hear from others and what we sing together. Words can get us into a place where we are blessed and encouraged. Words can also get us into a place where we uh, are fearful of what the future may bring. Right now, we're, we're seeing across the world uh, words being spoken that seems like it's putting us on the brink of some sort of greater conflict than what the world is already experiencing in places like Ukraine. And so words are powerful. When you bring it down from the macro to maybe some, uh, somewhat of the micro level, we see that words can build up a person or tear that individual down. If you don't agree with me, I want you to go back in your memory. For some of you, that's going to be a short term memory. For some of you, it's going to be a longer memory, but go back to the playground. Go back to childhood when you were playing with other children and just think about the words that you heard from others that were harmful, that were detrimental, that were hurting and biting to you. Kids can be brutal on the playground. Kids can be awful to one another on the playground. And so think about those memories that you have where someone was, was speaking such harsh and unkind words to you, or perhaps you were the opposite of that. You were the dispenser of such words. You probably heard or you probably said something like this, that old slogan, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You remember that? Or is that just in Arkansas? I know sometimes I share these expressions and you look at me like I'm crazy, like I've never heard that in the world. But that's what we used to say in Arkansas. I assume that's what you used to say here in, in Virginia, that sticks and stones, yeah, they'll, they can hurt me. They can break my bones, but boy, your words will never hurt me. What, what, what would lead a person to make that sort of statement? Well, a kid is using that as a deflector, using it as a defensive mechanism to try to personify this idea that these words were going to just glance off me. But here's what we know to be true. While we may say that those words didn't hit me, they didn't strike me, they didn't bring pain into my life or into my, my, my emotional state, the truth is those words almost always hit their mark and they almost always wounded their target. Words do hurt. This harshness that we experienced during childhood many times leaves a mark on our lives. And it's not so much different for adults. Adults can be brutal to one another with their words. When you think about the power of words, we know that they can strengthen also. They can bring encouragement to others. Think about it. When a husband affirms his wife by telling her that she's beautiful, his words lift her spirits. His words encourage her and build her up. When a supervisor points out and rewards the great job of her employee, those words 
encourage the worker to do better. There's tremendous power for good in a spoken word. This is seen, this truth is seen most clearly in the gospel. It's seen most truly and most cleanly in the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's proclaimed. You see, as we move through the gospel of Luke, we are seeing the power of the spoken word and its effect on the people who hear it and receive it. For example, what we've seen already through the first seven chapters is men and women responding to the preached word of God. We've seen James and John, Simon and Andrew, those rough fishermen, hear the gospel and respond in faith to Jesus Christ. We've seen Levi, that wicked tax collector, hear the love of Jesus spoken by the Lord and respond and be encouraged. We've seen the centurion, the widow, and the sinful woman there in Luke chapter 7. All hear the gracious words of the Lord and be blessed by them. What was the message that these people heard? It was the gospel that they heard. It was the gospel that built them up. It was the gospel that brought transformation. You see, the good news of the gospel changes the lives of those who hear and receive it. We could go around the room this morning. Those of you who have heard the gospel and believed on the gospel, who put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you would all bear testimony that it was the truth and the word of the gospel that brought transformation to your life. That you're not the person you used to be. Now, you may not believe and you may know that you're not where you need to be or where you want to be, but you're not where you used to be. Because the gospel, through the preaching of his word, Jesus has brought transformation to your life. And so as we begin the eighth chapter this morning of this gospel, the very first few verses that we're going to look at show us that Jesus' mission of kingdom preaching changes the lives of those who receive the gospel. So take your Bible and look with me, and let's read the first three verses this morning. Luke says this, Soon afterward he, again, that's Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Luke here gives us a very brief summary about what's taking place in this new juncture that's taking place or this new aspect, this new theme that we're going to see play out in the rest of his gospel. Really what happens here in Acts chapter or Luke chapter 1 verse 8 chapter man I can't even talk this morning. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 is he's beginning a new theme. It's going to continue on through chapter 9 verse 50. And in this theme, we're going to see a tour taking place. You'll read most commentators, they get to this point, and they'll talk about, or, or they'll classify this as a new section, and they'll call it the tour. What's happening here? Well, Jesus is continuing to ministry, and he's traveling, as he said, throughout all these other villages, all these other towns. He's making his way around the countryside, and he's doing what he's been doing. He's meeting with people. He's speaking with people. He's healing people. And so you're going to see this back and forth where Luke is going to give us some teaching, and he's going to give us some some depiction of miracles, and it's going to alternate back and forth until we get to verse 51 in chapter 9. There it's going to change, and we're going to see Jesus literally begin to turn his face towards Jerusalem. 
And it's going to move from 951 all the way through chapter 24, where Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem, be crucified, be resurrected, and everything's going to culminate there with his sacrifice that's made for us. And so in this new section that we're going to be in, we're going to see that the burden of all of this, or what this section is trying to teach us, it's going to culminate in Peter's confession of Christ, chapter 9, verse 20 where Jesus is going to look at them and say, who do the people say that I am? And he's going to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus is going to use that to teach his disciples about his mission. And by inference, he's going to teach us about his mission and how it makes a difference in our life and how we should join him in this mission. But in these initial verses, Luke here introduces us as the reader to some of the people who responded to Jesus. Now, I just mentioned some of those who've already responded to Jesus. You've got James and John and Andrew and Simon. You've got the centurion. You've got the widow in name. You've got all these people who have heard Jesus, experienced Jesus, and have responded in faith. And so we are clued in is some of these others. Some of it's rehashing, like the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles are mentioned. But then he tells us some of these who are new. You've got Mary Magdalene, you've got Joanna, you've got Susanna, and the others who have all responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so from these verses, we're going to learn just how the good news of the gospel changes the lives of those who receive it. And I want to share with you four things that I believe are fully on display as we look at these three verses this morning. First of all, I want you to see that the good news rescues people in spiritual bondage. The good news rescues people who are in spiritual bondage. Look there in verse 2. Luke tells us that according to this verse, that there are women who had been healed of evil spirits. There are women here who had once been possessed by demons, but when they met Jesus, when they heard from Jesus, when they experienced Jesus, he freed them from the spiritual bondage that they were under. Mary Magdalene is one of those who is mentioned who had spiritual bondage in her life. Luke tells us specifically that she had seven demons that came from her. Now, there's two different ways of thinking, or I should say interpreting what this means. Luke could be cluing us in to the fact that there were literally seven demons that possessed her and controlled her. That's the simplest way to look at that. Another aspect or another nuance of how to interpret what Luke is saying here is that going back to what seven typically personifies or, or means in the Bible, that of wholeness or completion, Luke could be saying that by having seven demons, she was completely controlled by the demonic. I think both are in play. I think both are good and, and faithful interpretations. I would look at this uh, and, and interpret it both ways. She had seven demons that come out of her, and they had complete control over her life. She was in spiritual bondage. She was in spiritual darkness until she met Jesus. Luke de- describes her or, or, or speaks of her name, and she says, Mary called the Magdalene. Well, that suggests that she was born or from the town of Magdala. Magdala is a, a small town on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. It's about three miles north of Tiberias. 
Uh, Rick, you probably remember us traveling through Magdala back in February. We spent some time in that city. We drove through the city of Tiberias. It's a place there. It's a historical marker that's even existing until today. And so Mary was from this area of the Sea of Galilee. She had been miraculously healed from demon possession. Luke tells us that she followed and supported his ministry, the Lord's ministry. We also know from Scripture that she was a key witness to Jesus' death. She was a key witness to his burial. She was there with the empty tomb. In fact, she was the very first one to meet the risen Christ. And so what we see in the Gospel of Luke is that she's mentioned a couple times. She's mentioned here. She's mentioned in chapter 24, verse 10, at the resurrection and, and the whole thing that goes on there. Mary Magdalene had a relationship with Jesus, and her relationship started when she met the Lord, and he freed her from her spiritual bondage. You say, what does that mean for me today? I don't know that I've ever been possessed by demons. I don't think I've ever met anybody possessed by demons. And so what does that mean for me today? Well, here's what you need to know. While not everyone that you meet, or perhaps you've never met someone that's been possessed by demons, what the Bible tells us is that everyone, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, is in spiritual bondage. Now, you may not be possessed by demonic activity, but you are oppressed. And for that matter, the Bible tells us that we are sinful. In fact, if you got your Bible, or you can just look at the screens, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul lays out the doctrinal understanding of what it means to be dead in our sins. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, apart from Christ, sinners follow their master. Who is the master of the one who is apart from Christ? The master, according to Paul, is Satan. It's the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And so this was true of Mary Magdalene and the others mentioned here in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. They were cut off from God. They were outside of a relationship with God. They were without hope, having no desire in and of themselves to seek after God. You see, their future seemed to be bleak, Something good happens in their life. In that moment where we read the text and we see, man, there's nothing that can be of a help to them. There's no hope for them. What can they do when they're dead in trespasses and sins? What can happen to them who are cut off from God? That's when the news gets good. Look at verse 4. Paul says this, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own, doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When everything looks hopeless, when everything looks bleak, when everything looks like there's no good news coming, what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, becomes right in front of us. The, the truth and the reality of what Jesus wants to do in our life comes to the forefront where it says, but God, when it looks hopeless, the Bible says, but God. I, I don't believe there's a greater and a more incredible phrase in all of the Bible than but God. When, when everything is hopeless, when everything is going to hell, God steps in on our behalf. You see sinners who are doomed and dead in their sin on their way to a devil's hell. But then in that moment, God steps in. But God, in his grace, saves us through his death, burial, and resurrection. The good news of the gospel changes the lives of those who receive it by faith. As Jesus rescues people in spiritual bondage, we're transformed. Today, if, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you've been rescued from spiritual bondage. There was a moment when you were dead in your sin. There was a moment you were cut off from God. There was a moment when you were hopeless and helpless. But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, steps in and rescues you. You were once enslaved to the passions of your flesh, and you were by nature a children of wrath. But God freed you and seated you in the heavenly places in Christ. You have been rescued. This is the good news of the gospel. There's a second thing on display. The good news transforms people physically impaired. The good news transforms people physically impaired. You see, with Jesus, there were, as Luke tells us, men, women, I should say, who had been healed not just of their spiritual bondage, but he says of infirmities. There, there were women there who had been healed physically. You see, as we read through the Gospels, one of the marks of, his, of the Lord's ministry is the miracle of healing. Why does the writers like John and Mark and, and Luke and Matthew, why do they make such a big deal about this storytelling where Jesus is going village after village after village and healing all these people? Why do we read stories of the dead being raised? Why do we read stories of the, the blind people receiving sight, the deaf hearing, those who have leprosy being healed of their leprosy? What is the big deal with all of that? Well, the Bible, what we see here is the miracle of healing validates the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. The miracle also portrayed the reversal of the curses of God there in Eden against the sinfulness of humanity. And so when God cursed creation, when he cursed humanity so that no longer would, would the world just be flourishing for us, but instead the world would work against us, Jesus in healing people is, is foreshadowing what's ultimately going to come and be the benefit of his followers. He's rolling that back for us. I'm struggling today, I'll tell you what. It's a bad day. I'm going to go home and wake up again. So as believers, we understand this reversal as just another aspect of this principle that I hope you've clued into in your walk with Christ, the already but not yet. 
This aspect of the kingdom of God, that it is here. Already we experience the kingdom of God, that we are the benefactors of the kingdom of God, and yet it's not fully actualized. It's not fully experienced by us. It's still awaiting us. It's still coming for us. You see, the kingdom of God will finally come when Jesus returns again, but we get to live a little bit of heaven even today. And so Jesus, through his earthly ministry, as he traveled from city to city, village to village, and interacted with people, he healed those to prove his messiahship, his lordship, but also to give them a little bit of taste of heaven. Already, but not yet. You see, one day... Thankfully, there's coming a state of living that's going to be free of pain, free of suffering, free of the threat of death. No one will ever again come down with a cold. No one will ever again be diagnosed with cancer. The former things at that moment will have passed away. All infirmities, all diseases will be cast into the lake of fire and will be done away with. And what else is going to be in that lake of fire? Well, you've got the enemy himself, but death also is going to be cast into that fire. You see, one of the beauties of the gospel is that when we faith into Jesus, it transforms us physically. You say, Pastor, I'm not really experiencing that in my life. In fact, I've got the diagnosis of cancer right now. And Pastor, I've dealt with some serious illnesses in my life. In fact, we have people that are not here this morning because they're sick. They're at home. And so how are we supposed to rationalize and understand what this truth is teaching us, and yet we still deal with these physical ailments? Again, already, but not yet. It's a taste of heaven, but heaven is not fully Come, it's pointing us to the future. It's pointing us to faith into Jesus. So the good news of the gospel changes the lives of those who receive it as Jesus transforms people who are physically impaired. Today, if you're sick, if you're battling cancer, if you're struggling with the effects of a stroke or wrestling with an injury, here's what you need to know. Jesus cares for you. Jesus empathizes with you. Jesus is working on your behalf. We also need to know that the good news of the gospel is working to transform your life. Sometimes that comes in the fact that Jesus just heals you, right? Chapter 7, Jesus comes to this town of Nain as we looked at a few weeks ago. And there he's moved in his heart for a widow who's buried her husband. And now her only son has died. And he's moved in his heart. What does he do? He walks up and he touches the casket of that woman's son. And he immediately comes back to life. Sometimes Jesus works like that. And there's times where we as a church, we'll gather around and we'll pray for a brother or a sister. And we're going to do that in just a moment at the end of this service. We're going to pray on one of our sisters who's got a major doctor's appointment tomorrow. We're going to ask God to touch her and heal her, but we're also just going to believe him, and he knows what's best, and his will is perfect and good. And so God sometimes heals, but sometimes he doesn't heal. But here's what we do know. There's coming a day that there will be full healing. It may be on the other side of the grave, but there's coming a day that there is full healing. We just got to believe that's God's goodness there and God's provision there, that he knows what's best for our lives. And so we want to allow the hardship in our life to transform us so that we're faithing into Jesus more rather than running away from him. There's a third thing on display. Now I need to hurry. I guess. I don't see a clock this morning, so um, we're good to go. 
Number three, the good news welcomes people regardless of gender, ethnicity, or lifestyle. As Jesus here is preaching through these cities and villages, who's he interacting with? All kinds of different people. You've got the religious people. You've got the people who are not religious. You've got, uh, you know, good Jews and bad Jews. You've got wicked uh, Romans. And just there's all kinds of people from all different lifestyles. Uh, what Luke clues us into, he says, well, in this group of people who are following Jesus, you've got the 12. Who are the 12? They're the apostles. We've already looked at that, I believe, in chapter 6 when they were appointed as apostles to carry on the teaching. Jesus is training them. Jesus is raising them up to carry the mantle when he's gone. So there with Jesus, but also with these men, were some women. Some women accompanying the Lord Jesus. Three are mentioned. you got Mary Magdalene, you got Joanna, you got Susanna. And then there's many others. I don't know if that means many other women or if that's men and women, but there's many other people who have partnered along in this journey of faith. We've already discussed Mary Magdalene, so I don't want to go into her backstory, but let's look at these two other women. Joanna is also mentioned, and she's mentioned here as well in chapter 24, verse 10, which is the same verses that uh, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in. And so Joanna, I think we can look at and say she represents maybe the scope of Jesus' ministry, the, the, the further or the furthest reaches that it goes. It's not just going down, maybe to the lower classes where we would typically believe, but Luke tells us that her husband is serving Herod, King Herod. And so he was an administrative official of some sort. Perhaps he was even the manager of Herod's estate. What that means is, is he had a high-paying job with high influence. I'm going to say more about him in just a moment. Luke then mentions Susanna. Now, we don't know anything else other than what we have right here about Susanna. She's not mentioned another time in the entire New Testament. So we know nothing else about her. And then he talks about many others. So he's leaving all kinds of people unnamed. And these might have been, as I said, men or women. Either way, it doesn't matter. Luke here has purposely, clearly put on uh, the pedestal women. You've got Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and the term that he uses for them at the end, speaking of the service they provided, is the term from which we get the word deacon. These were women who serve the Lord. These are women who serve other believers. They serve the body of Christ and the gospel of Christ. These are women who gave of themselves, gave of their means, gave their time, gave their energy, gave their treasures. It's interesting as you read through the gospels to, to note that Luke puts more of an emphasis on women than the other three gospel writers. It's neither right nor wrong. It's just an observation. But I think he's making the point that Jesus' attitude about women was a whole lot different than that of the rabbis. You see, Jesus included, elevated, and welcomed the ministry of women. Well, let's go back to Joanna here. Who is this woman? Luke tells us that she is the wife of Cusa. His name has some connotations that would lead us to believe that he has a Syrian or Nabataean ancestry. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, if he is of Syrian descent or Nabataean descent, then that means that he's not fully Jew. That means he has some sort of background that is outside of the people of God, and yet he's inside the, 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 
the Israeli camp, so to speak. He's serving the king there, who's under the umbrella of obviously uh, Caesar, but he's there working in King Herod's kingdom, in King Herod's service. And so it's speaking of this inclusion of someone who's not of the same ethnicity. So his name reminds us that the good news of the gospel welcomes all ethnicities. You see, the faith of the Bible, the, 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 the gospel, is not for just Jews, it's for Gentiles. I love what Paul says, that the, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Who? To the Jew first and then to the Greek. So the Lord doesn't care about the color of your skin. You could be in here with red skin, white skin, black skin, brown skin, polka dot skin. It doesn't matter. Jesus loves people just the way they are. It doesn't matter about your eye shape or any of the things that you may look at and say, these things make us different. It doesn't matter about the heart language that you have. Jesus looks at you and he sees that you're a son or daughter of Adam. You bear the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, you're a value. Therefore, God wants you. He wants to be in relationship with you. So we see that the gospel welcomes all people. So not only does the good news of the gospel welcome both men and women and all ethnicities, it also welcomes all lifestyles. Now, we don't know any of the specifics about the women mentioned here. We know a little bit more about the 12 apostles because there's so much more said about them. But what do we know about the people that we've already seen in the first seven chapters. Who were these guys I mentioned earlier who were fishermen? James and John and Andrew and, and Simon, who's later called Peter. What do we know about them? Well, we know they're rough guys. We know that James and John, at some point in Jesus' ministry, kind of got huffy with some other people, and they're like, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven and just kind of make these people crispy critters? Remember that story? And that's the kind of people they were. They were rough. Simon or Peter later on is going to cuss when a young girl is asking, hey, are you a follower of Jesus? I think I recognize your voice. I've seen you around town. That's the rough character of these men. We also see that Jesus welcomed the cheating tax collector. He welcomed the scandalous prostitute. He welcomed the invading military officers. I mean, he's the one who went to the home of the centurion who sent for him. Jesus welcomed all people, even those who were seemingly pious seekers of God. Jesus welcomed everyone. So this eclectic compilation of sinners that we see in the Gospels were all welcomed by the Lord Jesus, which means for us today that it doesn't matter your stripe, it doesn't matter your belief system, it doesn't matter your lifestyle, Jesus welcomes you. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a passage that many times we quote, and rightly so. We're trying to make the point that Jesus wants our lives to change. But listen to what Paul says. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's right where we say amen, and rightly so. Because in heaven there is no sin. In heaven there is no sinful people. In heaven there's only people who look like Jesus and act like Jesus. But what does he say next? Verse 11, and such were some of you. What? Such were some of you, absolutely, before you came to know Jesus Christ, 
you fit into this category on some level. On some level, you fit into this category. You know, I've never stolen anything. Sure you did. Sure you did. I won't even go into the offering this morning, right? We won't even touch on that yet. That's the next point. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We do like to quote this verse, this passage. And we, want to quote, we quote it to show the displeasure of God, the unacceptance of God for our sin. He's, he detests it. He, he shuns it. He pushes it away. It, it brings condemnation upon our lives. So it's important that we understand that a person cannot live in ongoing sin and walk with God, be in relationship with God. We cannot hold onto our sin and assume that we are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that, we should not make the mistake or begin to think that no one living this kind of life can or will ever be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul cuts that whole argument off when he says, but such were some of you. What does that mean? You were once like that, but you've been redeemed. You were once dead in your sins, a slave to those passions, but God, being rich in mercy, has called you to himself. God in his rich mercy has changed you from the inside out. And so this morning, hey, what does that mean for us? It means for the person who battles some sort of same-sex attraction or who has decided to fully embrace that lifestyle, God will deliver you from that. He welcomes you to himself. It means for the person who, who's a drunkard, who, who's a slave to the drink, who's a slave to the, to the addiction, whatever that may be, it means that God welcomes you. You're not so bad in your life that you've out the gracious, loving, expansive arms of Christ. He embraces you. Whatever it is, you just throw your sin in there or the sin, and Jesus' arms are wide enough and big enough to reach around and to embrace you. Good news of the gospel changes the lives of those who are welcomed by Jesus. There's a fourth thing on display. The good news spreads to people through the generosity of believers. When you think about the early church, which is what we see through the epistles, the book of Acts and the epistles, is the expansion of the early church. And one of the key components of the early church was women, right? We see three on display right here. With Mary Magdalene, you've got Joanna, you've got Susanna. We don't know a whole lot about those other two ladies, but then we read about Mary of Bethany. We read of, of um, Philip the evangelist. He, he had two daughters who all pro also prophesied, I believe it's in Acts 20, from that neighborhood. You've got all these women who are mentioned. You've got the woman, Lydia, who, who housed the church in Philippi right there in her home. I mean, the, the gospel is planted in the city of Philippi, this very strategic city in the Roman Empire, and she housed that church in her home. Women were extremely important to the expansion of the gospel and the birth of the early church. They were crucial to the spread of the message. They partnered with the apostles and other believers to take the message of the kingdom to the corners of the earth. And I use that word strategically. I think as we think about our work together, our collective work as a church, it is partnership. We are partnering together for the sake of the gospel, the work of the gospel. So that means some go preaching. 
Some people God calls and raises up and they, the church sends out and they're the ones who go and to preach the gospel in hard to reach places from people who are far from God. They're the ones who pioneer the gospel in places like that. They go and preach. Then there are others who stay behind and they give so that people can go preach. And so I believe that we are called to one of those, if not both of those. We're called to give and we're called to go. We're called to support those who go or perhaps we're the ones who's giving and going. But we're there to preach and to share the gospel. How does the gospel spread? It spreads through our generosity as believers. Spreading the gospel here and there is one of the reasons that this church has existed for 176 years, is it not? If it's not for that, what other reason do we gather together week in and week out? Just so that it can be us four and no more. No, we want to spread the gospel. I've been here long enough that I've seen this church literally transform. There are a lot of you that were here when I came, but there are tons of you who weren't even close to being here seven years ago. You weren't even living in this county then. And so that means this, as a church, we've continued to reach new people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you have come to faith in Jesus. You've been baptized in this church. You're being discipled in this church. That's why we exist, to reach our Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't just reach our Jerusalem. We want to take the gospel to the Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen? How does the gospel spread? Well, Luke tells us that part of it is through the generosity of believers. And so this morning, as believers in Christ and members of his local church, we must assume collective responsibility for supporting the ministry of the word among our neighbors and among the nations. We need to provide for the work out of our means. That's what they did there in the latter part of verse 3. Many others who provided for them the work of Jesus out of their means. And so this morning I wondered, do you tithe? Through this local church? Here's what I've told you before, and I'm still convinced of it. That if every member of our church just simply tithed, gave 10% of their income, we would never lack for anything. Never have to take a special love offering. Never have to run, raise a capital campaign to pay for some sort of building or, or, or renovation or ministry project. We would never lack for anything if we just started with the bare minimum of the 10%. I don't have time to go into that argument because some of you are sitting there thinking, Pastor, the New Testament doesn't say anything about tithing. It's the Old Testament. We're in a new covenant. Let's tackle that later, but I think you're wrong. <laughs> I've said it before, so hopefully you've heard my argument there, and I think it's a good one. Luke here informs us that those who are following and partnering with Jesus in this gospel work, they didn't just give their time and energy. They gave their treasure, financially supporting it. Now, did they give their time? Sure. Did they give their energy? Absolutely. But they also gave of their treasure. And as a church, I want you to know, even as I said that earlier, I, I didn't want it to come across in any way that I'm spanking you. I believe we are an extremely generous church. Over the last few years, we've gave annually somewhere in the neighborhood of three quarters of a million dollars through this church. Whether it's through our capital campaign, our regular budget offering, which is where your tithes go, special offerings for missions, we've given a ton of money over the 176 years that this church has existed. And so you're to be commended for that. You're to be blessed because of that. I, I praise God for what he's done and continues to do through this church. But I also call you to continue to excel in generosity. You say, well, can't we just stop where we're at? No. First of all, we're all on different levels, right? 
There, there's some of you that you've never even started tithing in your life, and I believe that's kind of baseline giving, where you kind of start there. That's what's expected of you. But can God grow you in that? You say, no, gas is a billion dollars a tank. I understand. I can drive a truck. I mean, I turn it on, and I see just dollar bills falling out of my exhaust pipe. How about you? I get all of that. But can God, who owns everything, provide for every need that I have? Yes. And so why would I not be faithful in the area of trusting him with the things he's entrusted to me? And so we're at all different levels. Some of you have never started tithing. Some of you don't give at all, right? I don't know who you are. It probably changed my relationship with you, so I don't want to know. I don't want that to be the thing that I'm always talking about with you at all. I mean, you, as a preacher, I don't deal a lot with these unless it comes up in the text. Some of you have never given. Some of you don't tithe, but you're given a little. Some of you tithe. Some of you give above and beyond that. And so we're all at different levels. And so my job, my responsibility is to try to fan that flame and encourage you in the area of stewardship, that you would be faithful where you need to be faithful, that you would trust God where the areas that you're not trusting him, all for the work and the sake of the gospel, working through our church. And so what I would encourage you to do is if you've never given anything or you don't give anything, begin to give something. And if you can't yet bring, it, bring yourself to a place where you say first 10% is the Lord, start somewhere and quickly get to that 10%. If you're a person who's giving something but you're not tithing, well give the tithe. Let's step it up. Maybe you're tithing. Well can you give 12%, 15%? Man, I would love to get to the place in my life where I'm just trusting the Lord with whatever he says. If he comes and says, Lord, or not Lord, if he comes and says, James, I want you to give it all the way this week. I want to be able to say yes to that. Amen? We want to grow. Why? What does that do? It helps us fund the gospel. And so, Begin to level up in your giving. And you don't have to just give through this church. I was listening to a, a podcast that I listen to uh, pretty often. And um, it was on generosity the other day. And Dr. York, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, he made a statement. He's like, you know, he's it's a podcast for pastors. And he, he was challenging us in the area of generosity. And he made the statement that we as pastors typically, when it comes to the giving, we want to hold on to the monies of our church that comes from our people. And I, 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 I concurred with that. When he said that, I'm like, you know what, I really do want to kind of funnel all of our gifts through the local church and make sure it all goes, which means I'm trying to restrict the Lord. And he says, here's what I would challenge you to do. Encourage your people to give outside the church. Obviously, take care. The tithe, ought, I believe, ought to go to the church. But if you're giving above and beyond that, you sense the Lord wants to, to, to use you to fund missionaries overseas or use you to fund camp, compassion or, 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 or something along those lines, man, go do that. And he said, here's what I've learned in all of my years of pastoring, that it's never hurt the church. It's only blessed the church that much more. So I want to free you up to give to whatever the Lord's put on your heart. Just be generous. Let it fund and Spread the gospel. Because you're never more like Jesus than when you give. These people gave out of their means in the sport of the gospel. How does all this happen? It's through the spoken word, the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Words are powerful. As we get on a plane tomorrow and we fly over to South Asia and we spend uh, almost well, a week and a half or so 
going house to house, shop to shop, meeting with people, visiting with people, talking with people. What are we doing? We're there to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not there to wash feet, though if I had an opportunity to wash a feet, I'm going to do it. I'm not there to feed people, but if that's something we get into, we're going to do that. But in all of the things that we're going to do, the one thing that's preeminent is we're going to open our mouth and articulate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that has the power of God behind it. And this morning, if you're sitting here and you know Jesus, you know that to be true. Because there was a time in your life when some guy like this was standing on a stage or you were watching some television program or you heard something on the news or you were even maybe reading your Bible and you were reading words, but the gospel began, began to be clear to you, understood your sinfulness, your condemnation before God, your need for salvation, and you were drawn to faith in Jesus Christ all through the word, right? That was my testimony. Is it yours? This morning, some of you sitting in this room, today needs to be the day that you respond in faith to the spoken word. And so I don't know where the Lord's hitting you this morning. I don't know what the Spirit is churning in your heart. Hopefully, He's challenged you in a lot of areas. But one of those areas needs to be salvation if you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. I had an opportunity this past week to walk through the gospel with a lady uh, who, who's friends with one of our members. We got to articulate the gospel. And she seemed to be very convincing, very uh, uh, just broken over her sinfulness as she prayed to put her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All we did was talk. All we did is take the word of God and just kind of unpack what the Bible says about what it means to know Jesus. And God led her to a place of confession and repentance. Has that happened in your life? This morning, if it hasn't, I want to ask you to come. This morning, maybe you need to come and just say, Lord, I, I sent you moving my heart in some of these areas, and I want to respond in faithfulness, whether it's generosity, whether it's just allowing you to, to, to use me. But how are you going to respond this morning? So if you would, stand to your feet. Let's pray. Trevor's going to play. We're going to sing. And I want to encourage you to respond in faith to the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you for your call upon our, our lives. God, meaning in this, this room, most of us in this room, I believe, we could go back to that moment where we heard the gospel and we understood the gospel and it brought that transformation in our life. And God, we've never been the same. We understood in that moment that we were dead in our sin, that we were cut off from God, we were without hope, and yet God came to us. In mercy and grace, called us and drew, him, drew us to himself. And we thank you for that. Lord, this morning we want to walk in ongoing faithfulness to you. We want to be used by you. God, I'm thankful for these women in this passage, these 12 apostles, others who are in this, uh, this cohort of faith, walking with Jesus on this journey. Lord, we want to be in that same situation, walking, believing, working for the sake of the gospel. Help us to do that. But Lord, some in this room, some listening to us online right now, or some that will listen later, through the podcast, need to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So I pray that you would call them and draw them this morning. Help them to confess their sin and their need for you. We pray all of this, trusting you by faith for your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. 
We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.